BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to another bonus weekend episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. The motivation behind this one was simple. Continuing to tease out where exactly we are and where we're at and where we might be in terms of self-driving cars. I wanted to reach out to someone that covers this space all the time. So today we're going to talk to Ars Technica's Timothy B. Lee, not only to figure out where we're at, but also because Tim came up with some super interesting angles about the reality of putting AVs on the road recently that I hadn't even considered. But first... Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. Access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. Okay. Timothy B. Lee from Ars Technica gives me odds on my self-driving car wager. Uh, let's start with um, a little bit of basics. I keep reading that of all the players trying to make self-driving cars happen, um, everyone says that Waymo is like the furthest ahead of that whole group. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's hard to tell from the outside, but I think all the 
signs pointing in that direction. I mean, so Waymo obviously sped out, spun out of the Google self-driving car program, and so they have been working on this for several more years than anybody else. They started in 2009. Um, a lot of the competitors you see started in the you know mid uh, 20 teens. Um, so they had that big head start. Um, they've logged way more miles than anybody else. And in California, there's an annual um, process where uh, companies that test in California say how many miles they've driven, how many times there's been uh, quote unquote disengagements, which are you know cases where a driver has to take over. Now there's some kind of fuzziness about that because companies have some freedom to define um, you know what counts as a disengagement. So you want to take that with a little bit of grain of salt. Um, but Google has done far more miles of testing and has had far fewer disengagements per mile than um, anybody else for several years in a row. So they, they've, they've been doing it longer than anybody else, but are they doing it differently as well? Or, or, is, or is generally everybody kind of, is the technology sort of the same for everybody? Like, you know, we're trying to do machine learning to, to get the, the autonomy there, and then we're using LiDAR and all sorts of sensors and things like that. Are they doing something functionally different with their technology than others are doing? At a high level, it's very similar. So pretty much everybody, um, except maybe Tesla, is using um, cameras, LiDAR, and radar, that kind of trio of sensors to understand the world. Um, everybody's doing a fair amount of machine learning. Um, I think there's some, some uh, subtle differences in the kind of machine learning and the ways that companies use machine learning. Um, my, my impression is that some of the um, kind of the startups that are a little bit more uh, started more recently maybe use machine learning for more of the autonomy stack, um, whereas um, the, the rumor is that some of Google's technology is a little bit more uh, kind of hand coded, where they, you know, a human being is kind of figuring out, you know, what rules should the car uh, use. But it's hard to know the details because obviously they're not talking about those details. And I would expect uh, Waymo to be picking up kind of the best ideas that come from elsewhere. So broadly speaking, I think everybody's taking similar approaches in terms of the the machine learning, the sensor, the computing hardware, etc. So. Um... The this conversation was prompted by a couple of specific tweets. I'm gonna I'm gonna read the first one. Um, you, you tweeted recently. Until recently, my mental model of Waymo was that their technology was basically ready to go in late 2017, and that they were doing a last few months of testing out of an abundance of caution, and to give them time to build out non-technical stuff like customer service and maintenance. Um, but you said that you recently changed your assessment of that. What what made you change? Yeah, so for all year, well, so, so in 2017, the, the big thing they did is they, they claimed that they had stopped, they had taken the drivers out of the driver's side or running fully driverless um, vehicles. Um, and they never claimed they were doing that with all cars, but my assumption had been they would kind of gradually shift to doing that with all cars. And then throughout 2018, they had been saying they're going to launch a commercial uh, ride hailing service um, in Phoenix by the end of the year. And so they kind of sort of kept that promise in December when they launched a service called Waymo One. Um, but it's kind of a weird commercial service because number one, um, it was only open to um, people who are already in Waymo's closed beta testing program. Um, the only really change for them was that now they're allowed to talk about it publicly, but it's you know, the same program that they're already in. Um, and they also not only have one safety driver, but they've gone back to having two safety drivers, um, you know, a safety driver and also somebody in the passenger seat who's like taking notes and making sure the driver's paying attention. Um, and uh, th this is not, um, it's hard to really regard this as a commercial service because right. they're charging like Waymo and Lyft prices, but they're having, their costs have to be at least twice as much because they're ex employing um, two drivers rather than one. Um, and, and there's been, the, the anecdotal evidence that come out is that they really have not, even before this you know, official launch, they really were not testing that many cars with, without drivers, that the, the, the driverless thing seems to have been kind of a, 
more of like a kind of temporary experiment rather than something they were kind of ready to roll across, out and across so their entire Phoenix fleet. It's almost like this official launch was just to, to meet some arbitrary deadline that they had put put in front of themselves years ago. Yeah, I have not gotten them to admit that, but yes, they, they've been saying all year we're going to have an official launch. Um, they technically had an official launch, but it was like the, the smallest, um, least ambitious commercial launch that you can imagine. So you also tweeted that like if if Waymo were confident in its technology as almost ready to go, you'd expect them to be doing way more test rides with real passengers to test out the all the intricacies of the system like down to like you know getting in and out of the car and and all, all sorts of stuff like that but, but the fact that they're still in this really limited sort of scale of service right mm-hmm. now does that mean that it's it's seeming like we're we're a, a far way away still from from maybe me being able to hail one of these on on the street corner yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, they are doing a lot of that kind of testing. So, so they had this program called the Early Rider Program since early 2017, where they have a few hundred people who are have been getting taxi rides initially. They were free more recently, have been charging for them, um, and so they're doing some of that testing. But I think it's just fundamentally like once once you can actually take the drivers out of the car, then you can make a profit or at least break even on these things, which means it's economical to scale them up to much larger scales and then get the economy to scale. They can kind of get the cost down. Um, and you know, if that were the case, you would expect them to open it up to the public. I mean, obviously you couldn't, you know, there's millions of people in the Phoenix area, so you couldn't literally let everybody do it right away, but you know, you could start accepting, you know, just kind of anybody, uh, at least with a waiting list. And so the fact that they haven't done that, basically not, despite having a commercial launch, have not basically not increased the number of passengers at all, as far as I can tell, um, suggests to me that it really is still a, you know, it is a research prototype, uh, you know, they're doing, um, you know, testing, but they're not really ready to, to run a commercial service. I read a quote um, on the show last month from um, somebody involved in um, autonomous vehicles where he said that it, if everybody's at the point now where they're going into the real world, like this is really where the, I don't know, the, the, the pedal meets the metal. Or, well, I don't know what the analogy is, but like this is where it's getting real because when, you, when you're in the real world, if you're at 95% autonomy, and you go to like say 96%, like that's an order of magnitude different complexity. And then going up to 99% and 99.1 and 99.2. So is it mm-hmm. maybe that we're now at the stage where, okay, we're, we're out of running the tests in the simulations and things like that. But now that we are in the real world, like there's so many new different variables that are popping up that like maybe this is an inevitable sort of um, slowdown that all of these players should have expected as they have to work out all of these kinks now in the actual real world. Yeah, I think there's some of that. So one of the fundamental trade-offs you face when you run a service like this is you can, uh, you have a trade-off between safety and uh, convenience or, um, you know, kind of the, the pleasantness of the experience. So it's pretty, really easy to build a self-driving car that never hits anything if you don't mind, you know, going 10 miles an hour and slamming on the brakes anytime anything gets close to you, right? Um, and on the other hand, it's really easy to create a smooth ride if you don't mind, like, occasionally running somebody over. Um, and so every company has to kind of tweak that knob and say, you know, how conservative do we want it to be? And the evidence suggests that Waymo is super conservative. And so there'll be some cases where, you know, there'll be a difficult merge or a difficult left-hand turn, and the car will just take a really, really long time to go because they're being super safe. Not you Because know, especially with, if you think about it, like, when you're merging, sometimes in a busy traffic, you just have to kind of nudge your your car into the adjacent lane and expect the guy next to you to, to you know, give you some room. And um, I think software you know, programmers are just really reluctant to do that because if they screw it up, the, the consequences are really catastrophic. 
Um, and so I think for the most part, Waymo's vehicles, as far as I know, they seem perfectly safe. Um, but the, the last, that last 1%, I think, is largely dealing with congested or complicated situations um, and, and dealing with it in some, some other way than just like slowing down and hesitating, like actually knowing when is it safe and how do you kind of navigate the like complexities of um, you know, interacting with other vehicles. Um, the, the other thing I'll say, though, here is I, th I think what we're seeing is um, you're starting to see different companies um, have different business models. Um, and, and I've really started to think that Waymo might be making a mistake by going straight for the kind of full-scale taxi service. Um, there's been a long-running argument about uh, taxi services versus you know, manufacturing a car to sell to customers, where with that you have to have something that can um, work absolutely everywhere. And so in some sense, doing a taxi service is an easier problem because you can just do Phoenix, which you know, doesn't have snow and doesn't have really high-density cities. Um, but you see some other companies, um, other startups, uh, they're doing even simpler problems. So you have, for example, there's a startup called Nero in the Phoenix area who recently started doing grocery deliveries with this little um, vehicle that it's, it's on public streets, but it only goes 25 miles an hour. And it's small enough that it probably wouldn't hit, kill you, even if it did hit you um, at that speed. And I think you're starting to see startups that are you know, going slower and, and going in even more confined areas where they might be able to get to driverless quickly just because they don't have to solve some of these difficult problems like how do you merge on the freeway. Yeah, that this is another segment I read recently that you know before I can actually commute in a self-driving car, I'm probably far more likely to get my groceries delivered uh, by a self-driving vehicle. Um, so it, it, you said just real quick that um, you think that possibly um, Waymo is making a mistake by going the, the taxi route. Is that because you're saying that that's like a more ambitious target right now, and so maybe they should like you know ramp up to things like that? Yeah, exactly. So I mean, I, th I think history um, suggests that often what you want to do when, certainly when you're a startup, but when you're any kind of technology company, is you want to like, get a product to market that's like a real product. So like Waymo is not a real product in the sense that they're not making money or even breaking even, you know, per ride. And so by by tackling the simplest possible problem, you can have like an actually useful service, which means you can expand more quickly, and then you can learn from real customers and figure out how to make the product more affordable and more effective. And then I think once you have a product you know that works, you can then tackle higher higher speeds and um, and different uh, geographic areas and so forth. Um, another company I'm I'm really um, interested in in this respect is there's a company called Voyage um, that was uh, that is um, focusing on retirement communities. They are offering a taxi service, um, but their initial um, one of their initial locations is going to be a retirement community called the Voyage the right. Villages um, in Florida. Um, and it's really interesting because retirement communities tend to have uh, just naturally much lower speed limits um, than full-size cities, and they're also privately owned, and so you can um, make a deal with the, um, you know, with the retirement community as a whole. And some of them are quite big. I think the Villages has more than 100,000 people in it. Um, and so their their plan is just to like build a taxi service for that enclosed community. Um, and again, because they're only going 25 miles an hour, some of the trickier situations. Um, aren't they don't have to deal with like merging on a freeway and also just the safety. You know, it's just much much easier because one of the big challenges for self-driving cars is stopping distance. If you can stop in, in two seconds, then you only have to see a few seconds out in the, in the world and errors, you know, it doesn't really matter what's in front of you. You can just hit the brakes. Whereas on the freeway, if you have, if you have, you know, five, six, seven seconds to stop, um, it's, you really have to know, is that thing in front of me, um, you know, a, an obstacle I'm going to hit, or is that something on the side of the road or something that's going to get out of my way, et cetera. Um, and so that's another example where I think uh, in the long run, Voyage definitely wants to be, 
running you know, full-scale taxi services, but rather than immediately trying to solve that difficult problem, they go into the easier problem of can we build a taxi service that never goes less than 25 miles an hour. I mean, I think what they may be able to do is even though right now I think their technology is not as sophisticated, um, they might be able to get to the point where they can take the safety driver out and start to really scale that up to lots and lots of different retirement communities and end up with a lot more experience um, than Google, even though they don't have the kind of money that Google has. You mentioned again um, the the merging onto highways thing, and and that was the mm-hmm. other tweet that uh, tweet storm that I wanted to talk to you about. So, um, the analogy that you made is that if you think about like elevator doors, like they're programmed not to hurt you. So like you mm-hmm. think nothing of shoving your arm or leg into a closing door to to get them open again, and so like like you're saying, uh, the the existing uh, self driving cars are sort of programmed to be super super safe, right? And yeah. and so we know that. And so, as you were describing um, in your in your Twitter thread, other drivers will know that an autonomous vehicle isn't going to hit them. So, if you want to change lanes in front of an AV, you can just do it. You know it'll stop. Conversely, if you don't want to let an AV in, you can just not make room. So, it's almost like I've thought a lot about this. Like the problem, also in terms of entering into the real world, is that there's going to be this long interim period where the AVs have to deal with us, have to deal with stupid people. You know, like yeah. in a perfect world, all the vehicles will overnight be AVs, but it's this long interim period where it's going to be like AVs won't even be a large percentage of the cars on the road for a long, long time. So yeah. is the problem going to be dealing with us for the immediate future where like people are going to learn that you can be really aggressive around AVs because they can't be aggressive to you? Right. No, I, I think that's absolutely going to be a challenge. And I, I think it's. It's hard to predict what, how that will work until it's kind of happened. Um, so there, I think there's a benign scenario. I mean, think about elevator doors. Like, you know, the elevator door, is, it's not a big deal because the elevator door doesn't have anywhere, anywhere to be, right? And um, it, it's just, that's just kind of how it works. And so it might be that in the future, um, you know, a trip in a, a driverless taxi will just be a little bit slower because you'll get cut off a lot, but you will eventually get to your destination. Um, or conversely, it might be that you end up with like complete gridlock where, you know, you have a, a driverless vehicle that can't merge into the next lane and that backs up an entire lane and then the whole kind of, you know, traffic jams become much worse. Um, and yeah, I, mean, I think in that scenario, which I think is pretty likely, um, it's going to be a big problem. And it, I can think of a few different ways I mean, to deal with it. One would be, um, you know, like these cars do have cameras and LIDARs and so forth. So you could imagine um, kind of beefed up enforcement where you could, you know, if you cut off a self-driving car, it will send you know, the kind of full video details to the mm. police and then you'll get a ticket in the mail. And obviously people are going to hate that the same way they hate uh, red light cameras, but maybe for extreme situations, at least that would help with that. I mean, I think you'll see the same thing with pedestrians. I think especially once there's a lot of self-driving cars on the road, I think pedestrians will become even more aggressive about, okay, if I see the little lighter on the top of the roof, I can just like step in front of the car whenever I want. Um, so I, I think it's just really hard, you know, you can kind of try to imagine what it's going to look like, but um, these kind of complex systems, uh, kind of take on a life of their own. And so we'll, we'll just have to kind of wait and see uh, what it's like when there's a lot a lot of people. What, what do you think of those recent stories that have just started popping up about um, actual acts of Ludditism <laughs> popping up of people like, <laughs> you know, taking their anger out on the AVs when they see them out in the wild and vandalizing them and attacking them? Like, um, do you, I, I suppose, is that a trend maybe we can look forward to over the next couple of years? You know, I don't know. I mean, my guess is I, I don't think that that's going to be a, a large-scale problem in the sense that like, they're so new now that I think people with Luddite tendencies in Phoenix really feel, you know, like they have an opportunity to maybe strike a blow against this kind of thing. When it's, like, national and there's, like, lots of them, 
um, I think it'll kind of become normalized. Um, I, I do think that um, one of the weird things about the you know the kind of introduction of this technology is that there really has not been much debate about um, kind of the level of oversight that these things should have. Um, and I, I do think that these these companies might be uh, being a little bit foolish. And I think they really haven't tried that hard to either be transparent about you know the safety efforts they've done um, or about the problems they've had. Um, and I think that probably does fuel a certain amount of um, public concern. Um, so definitely the, the violence we've seen is not acceptable. I wouldn't you know, ever condone it, but um, I think it would maybe make sense for some of these companies to try a little harder to just you know, explain what they're doing, explain how the technology works, you know, dem- you know, show the data that shows the technology is safe, et cetera. All right, final two questions, um, a bit of prognostication. Um, do, you, do you expect that Waymo will expand beyond this Arizona test um, this year, 2019, maybe to California or other places? Um, I would not be surprised if they start a, an early rider program similar to what they did in Phoenix last uh, two years ago. Um, in 2019, I will be very surprised if they launch any kind of commercial service. I mean, because as, as we were discussing before, like I mean, it's not clear that um, – this really is a commercial service. It seems like they um, have a lot more work to do, and it would not be surprised if, to me if they, you know, had made very little progress and we're still roughly where they are now a year from now. But it's hard to say. All right, so this one's a little more unfair, I think, possibly. But um, I, there's a long-running sort of bit that I do on the show about like my bet of, you know, I, I was promised that I'd be able to commute to work by 2020 in an, an AV. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had to guess. Um, my mythical AV commute to work, is it likely going to happen closer to 2020 or 2030? Okay. So your commute to work is in, you're in the New York area, right? Which you're right is, is a factor, but let's say I'm a generic commute to work in, in Peoria or something. Well, no, I really don't think it, I don't think you can talk about it that way because it's going mm. to be city by city and it's going to matter. For example, I mean, uh, right now, like Waymo is, is pretty good at, at um, in Phoenix, but they really don't know how to use snow yet. They're, they're, t- they're right. testing. And so if you're in New York, I would expect you to be several years behind Phoenix, you know, even assuming everything else goes perfectly. Um, and then I think probably larger metro areas will get service before smaller ones. And who knows, there might be other factors. So um, I would say probably closer to 2030. I actually have a, um, a bet that I made uh, eight years ago now with uh, the, economist, uh, the economist Ryan Event. Uh, he's got. He had a uh, newborn daughter back then, and we bet about whether she would need a driver's license when she turned 16 in 2026. And I was on the pessimistic side, saying that she um, probably would need a driver's license. Um, and I've gotten a little bit. You know, I, I think there's a good chance I'll lose, but um, the last year or so, I've, I've started to think I might win again. So I, I still stick with about 2026. If, if I had to pick, kind of the, you know, when, when like the average, you know, American commuter is going to be able to hail a self-driving taxi. Um, I would say 2026, but I think you'll see. I mean, I think Phoenix will probably have it before that, and there'll certainly be rural areas that might not be, um, you not be able to get one until after the end of the 2030s. 